Hello, everybody. This is Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network, www.mutechteachernet.com. And it's great to be back in front of the microphone. I know it's been a long time since I've dropped anything on the podcast, but you know, uh, the last year or so has been pretty crazy as all of us have been dealing with the COVID pandemic. And I know myself in my own music class, uh, it's certainly been a long journey, but we made it through the year and I'm thinking that we're coming out better on the other side. Hopefully we've learned some things that we're going to carry with us and each and every day be just a little more appreciative of each other and our students and the job that we have. This new episode of the podcast is going to be a little different than what I've done before. Typically, I bring visitors in that I interview and we talk about topics concerning music technology, but I'm going to go solo with this one. You see, I've had this idea kind of bouncing around my head lately about where we are in music education training programs and music technology programs uh, in my own state here in Georgia, but also around the country. And I've been working to develop and help grow some of these programs and I've just run into some roadblocks and I've been trying to consider and think about how to overcome those and why are those roadblocks uh, there in the first place. In this episode, I'm gonna discuss some of these thoughts and ramblings that I've had about this and hopefully you'll find it interesting and if you have questions or comments uh, at the end of the episode, just let me know and I'd be glad to address those. So after struggling through my first two or three years of trying to figure out how to manage a computer lab, operate a doll, and develop a plan to teach students how to create music using technology, my wife encouraged me to take some of my newly developed computer skills and create a website. The purpose of the website would be to share the resources, information, and lessons that I'd learned through my transition as a 15-year veteran music educator in the traditional sense to becoming a music technology teacher. I accepted her challenge and set out to create the website. One of the first things that I had to do was create a web address for the site. With no formal training in marketing or business, I did what any other amateur would do. I went to the internet. Some of the standard advice that I found in naming and branding for a business was to communicate as clearly and concisely as possible what the purpose of the business is. My intent was not to create a business, but I did want it to be obvious what the purpose of the website would be. So I came up with the Music Technology Teacher Network. The Music Technology Teacher part was easy enough, and then I added network. I envisioned the website to be a place where teachers could share ideas and resources. To be concise, I abbreviated the web address to mutechteachernet.com. The next step, according to the marketing experts, was to create a tagline. If the name of the organization communicates what it is, the tagline is a summary of what the organization does. So I had to think about what were my goals? What did I want to accomplish? And I came up with advocate, support, inspire, create. Creating is the fundamental goal of what I hope to teach my students. Inspire, to inspire or encourage music teachers to explore this relatively new field of music education. If I can do this, you can too. Support. I wanted to support teachers and students by providing resources, lesson plans, and instructional materials to support learning and creating. And then advocate. 
And this has been the most challenging goal of the four. Advocacy was very important to me, which is why I listed it as the first goal in the tagline. One of the most satisfying aspects of teaching music technology for me has been seeing all the students participating in creating music who would not have otherwise been in a music class. Well, you know, I do have a few band, choir, and orchestra students in my classes, but the vast majority of my students are not enrolled in these traditional performance-based classes. There are a variety of reasons why a student may not choose to be in one of these classes, but I am convinced that an inversion to music is not one of them. Some students may not be interested in playing an instrument. Perhaps they're shy about performing in front of others, or maybe the traditional music classes don't seem to be relevant to their cultural or social backgrounds. Whatever the reasons were, I saw firsthand the positive impact participating in a music class had on the students in my classes. Creating anything engages a part of the brain that is often neglected in our educational system. Teaching my students about the elements of music, showing them how to take a small idea and develop it into a larger idea, then taking those larger ideas and putting them together into a finished product that they had created was incredibly positive for many of my students. Working to develop and expand music technology programs became somewhat of a crusade for me because I believe so strongly in making music education as widely accessible as possible. I worked on local and state level committees to develop curricula and instructional materials for teachers, as well as implementing other programs through our State Music Education Association to advocate for music technology programs. My state has a vibrant and growing music, film, and television industry that provides numerous career opportunities directly and indirectly related to music technology. I reached out and began fostering relationships with industry professionals and found that they were willing to collaborate and support the development of music technology courses in our public schools. Many public schools are constantly looking for ways to develop relationships with their community stakeholders and are more than willing to partner with businesses to enhance learning opportunities for students. The wheel was beginning to turn and momentum was building as music technology programs continued to grow in my state. One of the biggest challenges impeding this growth was finding teachers who were prepared to teach a music technology course. Surely there was a way for our public schools, teacher training programs, meaning our colleges and universities, and music technology related industries to come together, collaborate, and coordinate to benefit our students. I reached out to some of the larger university music education programs in our state to begin a dialogue about how to incorporate music technology into their music education programs. And that is where I ran into a wall. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in music education from two outstanding universities. I'm a product of these institutions and hold them in high regard. So please don't misunderstand and think I'm trying to be critical or pull a hit job on university music programs. Nevertheless, there was a distinct reaction to music technology as something that they simply did not do. University music programs are focused on classical or formal music training, while music technology was viewed as being in the realm of commercial or informal music making. To make matters more complex, some universities offering music technology degrees viewed music technology as being in the realm of recorded sound and engineering more so than actual music creation. Some universities offered a music technology and music education degree within their school of music, yet the two disciplines almost never intersected. 
I mean, they could have operated on the opposite sides of campus without affecting either of the programs. Furthermore, there seemed to be very little interest from either side in adapting or developing new components to their programs in the face of this evolution in music and education. And therein lies the challenge, or the conundrum, if you will. How can we go about cracking this nut, solving this puzzle, or just insert any other applicable cliche that you like? I believe that in order to move forward, we have to examine how we got to where we are now. Why do we do things the way that we do them? Education has a long history of various movements based on theories, research, and edu-babble jargon. Child-centered, whole child, differentiation, dimensions of learning, cooperative learning, no child left behind, it goes on and on. As a public institution, education policy has always been influenced by politics and public policy. But it seems that we entered into a new world of the politicalization of education first with the emergence of Common Core in the 2010s and currently with the ideas of social-emotional learning and critical race theory. There is plenty being written right now about CRT, what it is, what it isn't. I'm not going to go into an analysis of the implications of CRT in education, but I will say that I believe an underlying tenet of CRT is identifying a problem and then looking back to figure out how you arrived at your current situation. This should be done without bias, even though the result of the historical tracing may reveal certain biases. I think of it like being lost in a maze. You may find your way out by retracing your steps to discover how you arrived at your current state. Then, armed with that knowledge, you might just find a way forward. So, let's begin. America has political, educational, and economic institutions and systems, just to name a few. What are institutions and systems, and how are they related? Merriam-Webster defines an institution as an established organization or corporation, especially of a public character. I believe that the two key words in this definition are established and public. Established as an adjective means something that has been around for a significant amount of time. Public, as in the opposite of private, means something that is out there for all to see. So institutions are things that have been around for a long time and that most people are familiar with. As a society, we tend to look to institutions as foundational authorities, somewhere we go to get definitive answers. We tend to accept, not challenge, or question institutions. Oxford Languages defines a system as a set of principles or procedures according to which something is done, an organized framework or method. The interesting thing about systems is that they are often underlying and out of public view. We are often unaware of systems, or at least we don't question them as long as the system works. For example, when you need to take a shower, you go into your bathroom, you turn a knob, and you get water to flow out of the shower head. As long as the water comes out, you probably don't think about the underlying system that makes that happen. Nevertheless, there is a tremendously complex system that brings the water into your home and out of that shower head. The water has to be collected from a lake or a river, then transported to a public works facility where it is treated and sanitized. And then it has to be transported again through a system of pipes to a water tower or some sort of hold, uh, holding facility before it goes out into a town 
then a community, into a subdivision, and eventually into your home. Another thing to consider about institutions and systems is that they are often inherited or dictated by tradition. When we inherit something, we often accept it as it has been given and handed down through the generations. In some ways, it's kind of like playing the game of Monopoly for the first time. I mean, Monopoly's been around since 1935, and not much has changed in the rules or how the game is played. Chances are you learned how to play Monopoly from someone who was familiar with the game. The game does come with instructions and rules that can be referenced, but many of those rules are passed down by experienced players to those new to the game. We don't really question the rules or traditions of the game because it's been around for almost 100 years. Monopoly could be considered an institution as a game and the long-established rules a system for playing the game. So what does all this have to do with the conundrum of figuring out why college and university music programs are so hesitant to add music technology to their music curricula? Teachers teach the content that they are taught to teach. That content is dictated by the degree-granting institution not the State Board of Education, Chamber of Commerce, or local school system. Universities are considered institutions of higher learning and thus a final authority on what constitutes music as a formal course of study. As institutions, universities generally operate on long-established systems that most, including those currently operating the system, may not even be aware of or think to question. Even though public colleges and universities can be influenced through some political maneuvering such as budgeting policy or other public policy decisions, most still maintain a very high level of independence concerning the content and curricula of their programs. I am not advocating that this scholarly independence should be taken away or restricted, but I do hope to open a dialogue that would lead these institutions to consider widening the scope of what is considered formal music making and learning. To do that, we need to retrace the development of these institutions and examine the history that brought us to our current systems of educational training. Before I continue, just let me say that this should not be considered a scholarly article or recitation. While I've certainly done some research to make sure that the information I'm presenting is factually and historically accurate, some of the content is anecdotal, or at least drawn from my memory of music history classes taken long ago. Some of the statements and arguments are based on broad generalizations that always come with exceptions. It is not my intent to consider these broad generalizations as they relate to the current state of affairs in regards to music technology education. So, let's continue. It is interesting to me how classical music came to be considered art music in the mid-20th century, particularly in American culture. This delineation actually has little to do with the music itself, but instead, who is listening to the music? Listening to classical music or attending concerts of classical music by the middle of the 20th century was more about social and economic status more than anything else. If you were among the upper class, you demonstrated your cultural, economic, and social class by the type of music that you listened to and the concerts that you attended. Concert tickets were not cheap, and with the advent of the radio, why would you spend a lot of money on a single concert when you could save up, purchase a radio, and listen to music and programming every day? This stratification was further influenced by the platform and limitations of radio itself. 
Early radio didn't use DJs and records. Radio stations would broadcast live performances or events. These were either commercials that were read by an announcer, serial dramas or programs that were acted out by a limited number of actors with a few Foley actors using a box of tools and materials to create background and sound effects, or live performances by small musical groups. Radio stations were simply not big enough to bring in a full-size orchestra to perform. In many ways, this was the beginning of how musical genre became a defining characteristic of social and economic class. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go further back. It should be noted that the virtuoso musical performer that is revered for their artistry and skill is a relatively new development in the history of Western music. And for reasons that will later be explained, the path that I am tracing is of Western European music as it relates to American music. For most of the history of Western music, being a musician or composers was considered a trade, much like being a cook or a mason, a smithy or a plumber. Musicians often came from musical families. If someone wanted to become a musician, they would enter into an apprentice relationship with an experienced musician or composer who would train them until ready to venture off on their own. Often, this would be a parent. Musicians often made their living by either finding a member of the aristocracy or perhaps a church to hire them to provide music in much the same way a cook might be hired to provide meals. Or they might be part of a traveling minstrel show that were that would provide a mix of music, jugglers, and actors in towns for exchange for money or food. A musician or actor would have been considered a member of the lower or middle class at best. Going even further back to ancient Greece and Greek theater, the actors on the stage were little more than slaves who were often abused to provide entertainment for the audience. So where did the terms upper, middle, and lower class come from, by the way? Well, the answer can be found in Shakespeare's Globe Theater and other similar theaters of the 16th century. The most expensive seats were in the topmost level, sometimes referred to as the heavens, or in these lords' rooms. Only those at the top of the socioeconomic ladder could afford to sit in the cushioned comfort of these seats. The cheapest tickets were at the very bottom, on the floor in front of the stage. This was a rowdy place, with no seats and referred to as the pit. Fights and arguments would often break out and they would sometimes throw food and other objects at characters on the stage. The food was usually thrown down to the pit from the rich patrons in the upper levels. Actors were still not held in high regard and it was perfectly acceptable behavior to have things thrown at them. Between the heavens and the pit was the middle gallery. These seats were a little more expensive than standing in the pit, but not as expensive or exclusive as being in the heavens. The important thing to note in this arrangement is that everyone came to the same theater to see the same performance. The social status was determined by where you sat in the theater. Thus, the upper, middle, and lower class. This same arrangement would persist throughout Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. Whether it was the great opera houses of France and Italy or orchestral performances of works by Mozart and Haydn, Everyone was listening to the same genre of music or theater. Status was determined by where you could afford to sit. There are certainly some exceptions to these larger scale theater and concert productions. Through the end of the 17th century and well into the 18th century, 
There were still many members of the aristocracy who employed musicians to provide private concerts and background music for social events. The most well-known example of this arrangement was between Haydn and his employment as a musician for the Esterhazy family. There are also the German leader composers such as Schumann and Schubert who wrote these intimate works that were often performed in smaller settings. By the mid-18th century, it was becoming more common to see composers make their own living by presenting concerts of their music to the public. While this was a significant change, even the most successful composers such as Beethoven, Brahms, or Mahler would not be considered wealthy and supplemented their income with conducting and teaching jobs. Before we make the hop back over to this side of the Atlantic, there is one more important development that needs to be examined. Following the defeat of Cornwallis at Yorktown by George Washington and the scrappy new country that emerged, a wave of democratic revolution would sweep through Europe, perhaps most notably in France. The core of the conflict in France was between the aristocracy or ruling class and the non-aristocratic or working class. One of the strategies to garner support and stir up a spirit of revolution among the working class was the establishment of a National Institute of Music. The primary purpose for establishing this music school was to train musicians who would travel through the French countryside playing patriotic music and fanfares to draw attention for these rallies and call to arms in support of the revolution. While there had been some music schools established around Europe before, these schools were often established in like orphanages or for training children how to sing more so than a way to train someone for a career. The French National Institute of Music would later be combined with the Royal School of Singing to create the Paris Conservatory of Music. The first of its kind in music history and is still considered to be one of the most prestigious music conservatories in the world. Other conservatories of music would begin appearing throughout Europe in the first half of the 19th century and were modeled after the Paris Conservatory. Training musicians was still very much an apprenticeship model where a novice musician would study individually with a teacher to develop their artistry and skill. With the rise of democracy and the deterioration of the social and economic caste systems that had dominated European culture for hundreds of years, musicians became entrepreneurial and can improve their social standing. Because of the exclusive nature of conservatory training, acceptance into these national conservatories brought a new kind of social status. Acceptance into a national conservatory of music brought pride and prestige for the students, their families, and communities. Meanwhile, the United States of America was experiencing its own growing pains in the first half of the 19th century. But soon, after the end of the Civil War, it would see its first music conservatories established in Oberlin, Ohio in 1865 and the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore in 1867. Others would soon follow in Boston, New York City, and Philadelphia. The Paris Conservatory model of institutional music instruction has changed very little in the 225 years since it was established. Though it would eventually drop the political and patriotic mandate of its establishment, a model had been established. Those first musicians were taught a specific repertoire of music that consisted of patriotic and revolutionary themes. Once the musician was deemed to be prepared to perform that repertoire, they were sent out to perform for the public. That model developed into a program for training other musicians, where the student would study with the master performer. The teacher would teach a prescribed set of repertoire for the student. 
The student would then have to demonstrate mastery of that repertoire by presenting an exit recital to a panel or jury of master performers at the end of their course of study. Anyone who has received a degree in any field of music in the last 200 years will recognize this process. What is so interesting to me is that the United States of America, who announced their arrival to the world with the Declaration of Independence and established itself as a model of nationalism and patriotism, would embrace a French model to establish its own music conservatories using prescribed Western European works of music that would be presented to a jury in order to be declared a master musician. But that institutionalized system is exactly what set the stage for the conundrum that we face today in training music teachers for modern music making with technology. And I hope that you'll come back and check out part two, where I'm going to discuss American music in the 20th century and the divide that's happened between what we consider to be formal versus informal music making. I also want to encourage you to check out a book that I had published by Hal Leonard Publishing earlier this year. The title is Music Technology 101, The Basics of Music Production in the Technology Lab or Home Studio. I had a colleague of mine who works in a recording studio who read the book and his comment was, you know, you wrote this book for musicians, not technologists. And I looked at him and said, well, thank you. That was exactly my intent. So the book is really ideal for music students, but it's really geared for music technology teachers. It breaks down the basics of music creation in a technology lab or in a home studio. I try to provide practical, actionable, and easy to understand information, as well as resources and advice to anyone interested in teaching a music technology course or establishing a music technology course if you don't already have one. So if you're interested, yeah, go to howleonard.com and search for Music Technology 101 and you should find it. It's also available from other sources such as Amazon or your local music store or anywhere that you purchase and buy books. Thanks again for listening in. This is Heath with the Music Technology Teacher Network. MutechTeacherNet.com Advocate. Support. Inspire. Create. Teacher. Teacher. Network. Net. Net. Teacher. Network. Net. Net. Teacher. Network. Network. Music. Technology. Teacher. Network.